In the scriptures to Paul's letter to the Galatians in the third chapter, Our reading begins tonight in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, or because you believed what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put in effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, 
might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that law has come, we are no longer, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We've been looking at the nature of God's covenants and the unity of God's covenants, and we have seen that the covenants of God are essentially one. There is a wholeness and a unity in the bond that God has established with his people. Now that unity of the covenant, of the bond that God has established with human beings is based on the fact that the heart, the core of every covenantal bond is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the relationship that God establishes with men is through Jesus Christ, therefore the covenants must have an essential oneness. We can praise God for the oneness of his covenants because it has the effect of guaranteeing us that we participate in the blessings of the previous covenants that God has established. It's not that we've missed out on the blessings of the assurances of the preservation of the earth that God gave to Noah. When you look at the rainbow, what does that mean? Does it mean something to you? Indeed it does, because Christ is the guarantor of that promise concerning The rainbow that God will not destroy the earth again with a flood. When you read of the promises concerning Abraham's possessing the seed or possessing the land and his seed enduring in the possession of the promises of God for a thousand generations, what does that mean to you? Is it that you as a Gentile are just an observer of those promises? No, indeed, because there's a unity of the covenants and you're all one as the seed of Abraham, by faith in Jesus Christ. So the unity of the covenants is an important concept to you in that it binds you to these previous covenants and guarantees that all of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation says something precisely to you as an individual. But unity does not mean uniformity. There is a glorious and wonderful diversity in the covenants indeed. And it is something to grow into as we understand the diversity, the differences of the covenants of God. And we need to understand how as these covenants are different from one another, 
we relate to their diversity as well as their unity. So this evening we're going to look at the diversity in God's covenants to see that there is a magnificent beauty that's like a diamond that you can turn and from many different facets, just as you turn it, you can see the the brilliance of the light of God reflected in the diamond of the diversity of God's covenants. Now there are three basic points of diversity that need to be noticed. Three, I did say three, didn't I? You know, every good sermon has three points, and here we are with three diversities here in the covenants. One way that you can always be sure that you have three good points in a sermon, you can tell them what you're going to say, you can, tell, you can say it and then tell them what you said, and that pretty well makes for a good sermon. Well, tonight we're going to have a little more diversity than that and look at three major points in the way in which the covenants differ from one another. The first basic difference in the covenants is to notice the difference between the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption. To see that there is a drastic difference between the bond that God established with man when he created him and the bond that God establishes with man as he redeems him. That's the first major point of diversity. Now the second major point of diversity is to see a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. You've heard of the old covenant and the new covenant. What are these two covenants? What is the old covenant? And what is the new covenant? And what is old about the old covenant? What is new about the new covenant? Well, that's a major point of diversity in the covenants. First, the difference between the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption then the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And then thirdly, a major point of diversity, is to see diversity within the Old Covenant. Diversity within the Old Covenant. Now, you know that we're talking here, or maybe you haven't quite got this point yet, but we're talking about covenant theology. Has anybody missed that point yet? We're looking at the Bible from a certain perspective here. We hope that we're not forcing a form onto the Bible, but are finding that form which is within the Bible itself. And we have some basis for that in the fact that there are over 250 times, or approximately 250 times, not quite 250 times, that the word covenant is used in the Old Testament alone, which just shows that there is something of significance with respect to this word as it relates to the Scriptures. So we're talking about the theology the understanding that comes through a, an effort to gather the whole of the Bible together and see it as a unified whole in its diversified parts. And we're looking at the theology of the covenants of God. Now, you know, uh, the final criterion for any theology is the charts that it can produce. If you can produce good charts to represent your theology, then you know that you must have a good theology. You understand that principle, right? <laughs> All right, now here is, here is the true test. Here is the final test. And if you've seen my writing, you know I couldn't have done this chart. It's a beautiful chart. It's in Technicolor. And are, are you ready? Can, can you take this much light here that is about suddenly to be placed upon you? Well, let's look and see. 
There it is, right there. The covenant structure of Scripture in, in three different shades. Now, that's probably as much of a good thing as you can bear for one evening, right? <laughs> I don't know that we should give you any more than that. Well, okay, just maybe, maybe a little bit. Is that, no, just, the, okay, here we are. The covenant structure of Scripture. Now, just look at it from an aesthetic perspective, first of all. Isn't that beautiful? It is glorious. And it does reflect the beauty of the structure and the diversity that is found in the Bible. Now, this has also been called the lazy V theology. You see why it's called lazy V theology. I'm from Missouri, and you know, you've got to show me, and then you've got to brand me to convince me of anything. And this is the lazy V theology. Now, the idea of the opening up of the lazy V is to suggest the progress of God's intentions and purposes in the opening of history. So it's like a flower as it is, unfolding. We have a very unusual cactus in the house. If you didn't know it wasn't a rock, you would say that that must be a rock sitting in that planter. What what in the world is this rock doing in the center of a planter? But if you look right now to all of our amazement around the house, this rock-looking thing has suddenly had a flower begin to open. A beautiful flower coming out of this little cactus in a planter. Well, you have here a beautiful flower that unfolds in the processes of history. You have the seed at the beginning, but you have to see the process of the opening up of the beauty of this thing that God has made called a covenant. And those covenants span the whole of the history of the world and, as a matter of fact, provide a framework for understanding the history of the world. You can see you begin with Adam at the beginning. He was in the very beginning in covenantal relationship with God. And you can see that in the process of history, it moves to a consummation in which more and more people are involved, more and more nations of the world, more and more of the historical events of the world are incorporated in the covenants of God. Now let's go back to those three basic distinctions or or diversities within the covenants and break this concept of the covenant structure of Scripture down a little bit. And we'll begin, first of all, to simplify things with the covenant of creation. The covenant of creation. Now, what was the covenant of creation? Well, it was that bond of life and death that God established with man when he created him. You remember the word to Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. It was a bond of life and death that was established in that creational relationship. Now, that covenant of creation, as the Lord willing, we shall see in greater particulars in another Sunday or two, That particular covenant of creation has what may be called some general aspects and then some more particular aspects. Now, the general aspects of the covenant of creation were the responsibility of man to multiply and to, to reproduce, to establish the marriage relationship. That was a creational ordinance. Then man was given the responsibility to subdue the earth. And even today, you can see man in relation to the covenant of creation trying to conquer even outer space, trying to learn something from Halley's Comet as it comes close to us this time. 
to subdue the earth was a responsibility of the creation of man. And then there was the responsibility to worship God. The Sabbath was made from the very beginning. As that day set apart, God consecrated one day in seven, not for his own sake, but for the creation's sake, thus binding man to himself in the creational relationship. But there were also some particular, specific responsibilities that were given to man in the covenant of creation. And you know that particular responsibility that man was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this covenant of creation may be contrasted with the covenant of redemption in this particular. Here is the diversity. There, is some, there are these bases of similarity that continue. That's why you have the covenant of creation continuing to move. Man still is under the obligations that are given in the covenant of creation. But there are some particulars that are there that are different than the state of man in the covenant of redemption, which is where we are today. And that is what has classically been called a distinction between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. A covenant of works and a covenant of grace. That is another way of describing the distinction between the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption. Now, what is a covenant of works? Well, a covenant of works may be defined in this way. It is a covenant in which there is no provision for blessing in the event of disobedience. There is no provision for blessing in the event of violation of the covenant. You remember when God came to Adam and spoke to him and said, Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now that was a covenant of works that God established. Now what that means is that Adam had to work to merit and to earn the blessings of God. He had to earn his blessings. And God did not say to Adam, Adam, I don't want you to eat of this tree, but if you go ahead and eat, don't worry about it. We'll work out something. God didn't say it that way. God did not say to Adam, don't worry about it if you transgress. Don't worry about it if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll, I'll work out something to bless you anyway. No, he didn't say that. It was an ultimatum. It was an altogether yea or an altogether nay. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. That was a covenant of works. Now what is a covenant of grace? A covenant of grace is a bond in blood, a bond of life and death that God establishes with men in which there is blessing despite demerit blessing despite demerit in grace there is the assumption that the law has been broken there is the assumption that there is transgression there is the assumption that men have broken the law of God does that speak to your conscience does that speak to my conscience we have all sinned we have all violated the law of God and the covenant of grace says You can be blessed despite the fact that you have this demerit of sin 
within you. Now that's the basic difference between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Now it is absolutely essential for you, if you hope to be saved, to understand and to accept the distinction between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Who is under the covenant of works? Well, we know that Adam, the first man, was under a covenant of works. You know who else is under a covenant of works? It is every man who does not believe in Jesus Christ. And so long as you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you have placed yourself under the burden of a covenant of works. And if you are under that covenant of works, there can be no blessing in your life because you are a violator of the law. And there is no provision for blessing in the event of violation under the covenant of works. You know who else was under a covenant of works? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was under the covenant of works. Jesus Christ had to keep the law of God perfectly or there would have been no blessing either for him or for you. If Jesus Christ at one point had violated the law of God by losing his temper against the Pharisees, by resisting the will of God that was placed on him, then there would have been no blessing for him or for you. But praise God and give glory to God that the heart of the covenant of grace is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he kept the law. He kept the provisions of the covenant of works. Where Adam failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. You know the contrast in Romans chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed unto all men, for all have sinned. But as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by the one man's righteous act many are made righteous. Do you understand what that means? That means that you do not have to be burdened with a conscience that condemns you with a law that says there is no blessing for you unless you keep me perfectly. You can be freed from the covenant of works if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will transfer your trust totally and completely on what he has done for you, then you will be under a covenant of grace. And then there will be the guarantee, not just the possibility, but the guarantee of blessing despite your daily demerit. Despite the fact that you daily violate the law of God, you can have the blessings of God in your life. Now you as a Christian, you need to understand that you don't want to be under a covenant of grace with respect to your justification, but a covenant of works with respect to your sanctification. You need to understand that in both cases, you are under a covenant of grace in which it is not the perfect keeping of the law that merits your blessing, but it is Christ keeping the law for you and in you and through you. And even though it is an imperfect keeping of the law, the blessing of grace is still there, both in your justification, in your sanctification, in your daily living, and in your glorification. You are under a covenant of grace. It is blessing despite the demerit. It is the constant giving of new grace to you, even though you and yourself do not deserve it. 
And that's why you as a Christian can be always confident that God's goodness is toward you and his mercy is toward you despite your demerit. Now that's the covenant of creation. Now let's go on and we see a little bit more about the covenant of redemption. And we look at this second distinction between the covenant of redemption, well, the covenant of redemption in its various parts here, between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. Now here are the new covenant realities, and you can see that what you have in the covenant of redemption is a history of God's moving toward a great consummation. It is the history of God's moving toward a great consummation so that God made successive covenants under the covenant of redemption that is moving toward a goal. Now all of these covenantal manifestations that are made under the old covenant may be characterized as Shadows, shadows, they are old covenant shadows, types, images, forms. All of these are the characterizations that are used in the Bible itself. The old covenant is made of shadows, images, types, and forms. Now what of some of those particulars? Well, you think, first of all, of the sacrificial system. And you think of the way the people of God had to bring those sacrifices. Every time they sinned, they had to offer a new sacrifice. Constantly throughout the year, they had to offer different sacrifices. It must have been a tremendous burden for them. But God was taking them through school. He was taking them to school and teaching them the essence of the covenant relationship. You can think of the three offices of prophet, priest, and king in Israel. Those were shadows and types and images. You can think of the temple that they built, the tabernacle before it. You can even think of the great historical movements of Israel as they came out of the Exodus, out of Egypt in the Exodus, as they wandered in the wilderness, as they came into the land to conquer it. All of those were shadows and types and images of Christ, our Passover lamb, who brought us out of the bondage of sin, of the way in which we are pilgrims and strangers wandering, moving toward the consummation goal of our entering into the Canaan that God has set before us, the rest that God has placed before his people. All of these Old Testament experiences were shadows and types, and they are set in contrast with the new covenant realities as over against the shadows as over against the types as over against the images there are the realities of the new covenant instead of the Passover lamb of the old covenant what do you have today you have Christ your Passover lamb instead of the exodus of being delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians and the oppressions of the Egyptians. What is the reality that you experience? You are delivered from the oppression of sin in your life. 
Instead of going into a particular geographical territory and there finding the promises of God, you are moving, you are a people of God on the move toward a heavenly land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised for you. Instead of an earthly temple or an earthly tabernacle being the center and the focus of your worship, where is the place of God's dwelling today? You remember that when, they, when Moses finished the tabernacle, the Shekinah, the glory of God, so filled that tabernacle that no one could approach it. When God built, when, when Solomon finished the temple, the glory of God so filled that temple that no one could even enter into it. Not even the priests could enter. There was so much glory there. Where is the tabernacle? Where is the temple now? That form, that shadow of the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant reality of you being living stones. It is the people of God that are now the temple of God. And that means that you don't have to go down to the Washington Cathedral or you don't have to go to somewhere in Jerusalem to find God in his glory. You can go to Wallace Memorial Presbyterian Church. And there among the people of God, you can find the glory. It may not be evident so outwardly, but that substance of the reality of the glory of God is there. When we were discussing or, or hearing the praying of our elders, what came to your mind? What a wonderful thing is. What's happening here? While we're near the council of nations, while there is constant discussion of all kinds of great moving things that are happening in the world today, and those things are indeed of significance, what is happening here? Prayers are being answered. God is intervening in the lives of people. God is raising up the sick. God is giving jobs to those who need them. God is providing comfort. God is moving in salvation to save people within your own family structures that are without God and without hope in the world. What is happening? We're seeing the glory of God within the temple of God. Not only are you corporately the temple of God, but each of you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God in his glory is dwelling in your midst. Now that is reality. That is substance. Now who wants to swap for the shadows? Who wants to go back to the old forms? And yet we trick ourselves into doing it all the time. We so often substitute ritual and form for the substance of the reality. We often set our goals in ways that are saying, let's go back to the old ways, rather than realizing that we have right here, given to us by the grace of God, the fullness of the new covenant realities. So that is a basic contrast. Now you notice that in the lazy V, that this green line representing the life of the new covenant realities goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to the time of Adam. Why is that? Well, it's because even though they were in shadow form, the people of the old covenant also were experiencing those realities. They also had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They also were the people of God with God dwelling in their midst. And God also was providing forgiveness of sins for them in anticipation of the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb. So, the green, the realities of the old, goes all the way back there. So that's the second major distinction, the distinction between the old covenant shadows 
and the new covenant realities. First, the distinction between the covenant of creation or the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. Then, secondly, this distinction between the old covenant shadows and the new covenant realities, but realizing that all of these realities also have their form in the old covenant. Now, finally, concentrate, if you will, on the distinction among the various administrations of the old covenant. As you look, it's like studying the various parts of a flower. One part is the the delicate odor that it emits. What a wonderful thing that odor is. Another is the shape of the petals. Another is the color of the leaves. Another is the form of the whole that is made. And as you study and consider each of these various parts, you receive a greater appreciation for what is there. So God has ordered a series of covenants in old covenant form, in shadowed models, because he knew we were all going to be children anyway. Even though we were living in the context of new covenant realities, we're all still little bitty children. And we need these little models to teach us the deep things of God. And so when we go back and study these various covenants, we can find different aspects of the wonder of God's relationship to us. Now, just, we're just going to summarize tonight just a word on each one of these successive covenants and then the Lord willing will take each one of them successively and see something of the particulars as the flower of God's covenant unfolds. We have, first of all, Adam, the covenant of commencement. The covenant with Adam may be called the covenant of commencement because that's when God commenced. He began his work of redemption. And all that is there, all that comes subsequently was there in seed form. Then we go to Noah. And the covenant with Noah may be called the covenant of preservation. For God at that point committed himself to preserve the earth until he had completed his work of redemption. Then we go to Abraham and you can guess what that covenant would be called. The covenant of promise. Because the emphasis of God at that point was, I promise to you, Abraham, that I'm going to fulfill all these commitments I have made. Moses, the covenant of law. Now notice that all of these covenants are building on one another. It's not that one is kicking the other out, but each is building upon the other. Moses, the covenant of law. David, the covenant of the kingdom where God manifests his lordship and kingship over the whole of the life of his people. And finally, the new covenant, the covenant of consummation, in which all of these previous covenants are brought to fulfillment. And that is where we are. That is where you are. You're living in the age of the consummation of all of God's purposes. For that reason we can rejoice as we see the greater knowledge, the greater wealth of understanding, and the greater blessing that can come to our lives as we understand God's purposes through all the ages. All of that ultimately consummates in Christ, who is God with us. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have begun a good work for your people in the establishment of the covenants in the ages past. 
And we thank you that you have proved your faithfulness through all the years of time, through all the generations of men, and you have brought us to this hour. We are now nearer to our salvation than the day when we first believed. The Lord's coming is drawing very near. We thank you and praise you. We ask, O gracious Father, that you will give us a complete and full understanding of your will and revelation for us, that we might give glory to you. For we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.